It's been said uh, that the, the Egyptians have pyramids, the Chinese have a great wall, and the Americans, well, they have malls, which you either love or hate, or potentially you're indifferent. They are, however, the, the standard bearers of modern commerce. In Australia, uh, well, of course, we boast some of the largest in the Southern Hemisphere, never mind the, the mega-mall metropolises just to our north. Some, some of these malls, complete with five-star hotels, underground train stations, rooftop terrace gardens. They're a world away from their American siblings, where the idea of a, a shopping box surrounded by a car park has reigned supreme for decades. But today... Well, today, that idea, that idea of the American Mall is on, on life support. And architecture critic Alexandra Lang wants to find out why, uh, and that, that quest culminated in her, her book, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. And Alexandra joins us from New York. Alexandra, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Can we begin with what, what's potentially a simple and yet complex question? Uh, who are malls for? <laughs> that is a complex question. Uh, originally in the U.S. in the 1950s, they were really for women and children. They were for the housewives who were, you know, at home in their little box houses with their children and needed something to do during the day. I think over time, they've evolved to be for a lot more different kinds of people, a lot more different ages of people. Um, but that was definitely the original idea. What was the pitch then to those, those housewives and children? Well, the pitch was not so much to the housewives and children as it was to the department store owners back in the central cities, those department store owners saw that those women and children weren't going to trek back into town to do their shopping. And Victor Gruen, who was a Viennese emigre architect, argued to a couple of key department store owners that they really needed to follow their customer out to the suburb. And the mall was anchored by those downtown department stores, but also had all of the other shops that those women would need to do their kind of daily round of errands. And, and more than that, I mean, the original Gruen concept even involved things like libraries. It was a real recreation of a, of a typical small town high street within this confined environment. Yeah, I mean, Victor Gruen came from Vienna and he had very fond memories of kind of the pedestrian atmosphere of Vienna with outdoor cafes and shops. And he thought that the mall could recreate that in these brand new suburbs by bringing all of these things together and putting them under one roof. He thought he would be creating new community centers. And a lot of the malls in the late 50s and early 1960s had churches, had community function rooms, might have other public offices in them. It's a wonderful, I mean, that's an extraordinary concept. Well, I guess it's not that removed from where we end up, except that there's a whole lot of components there which aren't about some aspect of commerce. I think there's something very real and very human about his ideas mm. about what people needed and, and kind of what connective tissue we needed in the suburbs. 
the mall over time evolved away from this ideal and became a much more commercial enterprise as so many things do. I mean, the malls got bigger, they got, you know, kind of less oriented towards the specifics of community and more towards national commerce. And, you know, all of those things we see playing out in culture more generally. And I just feel like, if we're going to think about the future of the mall, we have, I always feel like we have to go back to first principles and like, what was the idea that really animated and attracted people in the first place? But even even quite early, we see this idea of the, the Gruen transfer, which is the, the notion that you come for something, you'll buy a whole lot of other stuff because you just happen to be walking past it. Yeah. I mean, Gruen definitely understood that when you put all of these shops with different things together and all of the store owners, you know, prop their front windows to be as beautiful as possible, that there was a point where this, you know, day to day round of errands that you were trying to do, you kind of leave your list behind and you're just drifting about the mall and, you know, essentially buying things that you don't need. And that was also part of his mm. pitch. It's not like he was some sort of philanthropist. You need to be in this, this disassociated state, which is, is prey for late-stage capitalism. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, they, they, you know, there was a lot of... I went about this book with a lot of enthusiasm, but also a certain amount of ambivalence <laughs> because, you know, I understand malls to be a capitalist and in some ways extractive enterprise. But that doesn't mean that I haven't enjoyed myself in malls, you know, being extracted. Like there is something pleasurable about it. And um, sometimes you just have to go with it. In those early manifestations, there's an issue here of, of, of segregation. There is a, a racial element in, in the, the body of people that are being attracted to the mall. Yeah, the American suburbs were segregated environments. The you know low interest rate mortgages that allowed so many former service members to buy their first homes in these newly built suburbs were largely available only to white servicemen. So the people that would have been using those early malls were generally white women and children, and then on the weekends, white families. Um, a lot of the early mall owners also discouraged public transportation from reaching the malls, um, either by saying they didn't want to be on a bus route or by putting the bu bus stop you know, across the highway from the mall. The whole way that the architecture of malls is um, isolated in what you call a car park um, <laughs> is very, you know, anti-public transportation, anti-pedestrian. And, you know, it required at that point a certain income level to even own a car to be able to access the mall. So, yeah, the original conception of the mall was definitely segregated. Um, but I would say, you know, in my research on the kind of more recent things happening with the mall, some of the most interesting adaptations have to do with the diversity of suburbs and malls adapting to reflect those diverse populations. Well, you write, and just to quote you to yourself here, commercial imperatives accidentally created an architecture that accommodates those who often have the least societal power, the young, the old, the disabled, the poor. That's quite a transition from that original segregated notion. It is. Um, and that really came about, I would say, starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s, where all of those you know, little kids that are being led by the hand of their mothers in the baby boom generation become teenagers and they start to want to go to the mall on their own. And they start to 
the mall starts to adapt to attract them and opens arcades, opens brands like Hot Topic that were definitely aimed at that teenage market. And it's really interesting that the mall that you know, seemed like such an anodyne kind of middle-class housewife concept starts to be seen as this precinct of teenagers. Um, You also mentioned in that (laughs) quote, old people, you know, old people use the mall as mall walkers, these early morning walking groups, because the mall is actually a much easier place to walk than most American suburbs, some of which, you know, don't have sidewalks, don't have streetlights, you know, don't have bathrooms and benches. Like all of these things are provided by the mall, you know, for a fee, but they do make that kind of public life more convenient. There's also an architectural arc that, that mirrors that, that social transition. Yeah. I mean, the early malls are really pretty simple, like one uh, one department store at one end, one department store at another, and then a run of shops in between. But over the years, they become more and more elaborate. Um, in the 1970s to 1980s, a lot of them start to be mil- built along the lines of the European gallerias. So, you mm. know, two stories, sometimes with a skating rink inside and a glass roof. <laughs> so they're much more urbane. And then people start to treat them as these little fragments of a city that they don't really have. Why do they begin to, to, to atrophy? What's, in, what's the secret of the dying American mall? <laughs> Well, another thing that I say in the book is that people have predicted the death of the mall starting in the mid-1980s. So the mall has been dying for (laughs) various different reasons for a long time. Rumors of its death. Yes, rumors (laughs) of its death. I would say, you know, the mall is definitely a creature of fashion, right? I mean, the the stores in the mall have to keep up with the times because people are not going to want to go to your mall unless it's keeping up with the times. And then the mall itself as an architectural form also has to keep up with the times. So what's been particularly damaging to the mall over the past decade is the demise of the department store as a center of fashion and really a center of taste. Um, In the U.S., a lot of department store brands underwent a huge consolidation and they just in general like aren't the place where young people are looking for new looks anymore and so if that is the anchor for your mall and those stores close or those stores aren't attracting people that's a real problem but in the revival of the mall there's almost a completion of the circle isn't there i mean getting away from the strictly commercial imperative to a a broader social meaning being found in those places as as they are reconstituted somewhat in the modern setting. Yeah, I think the smartest mall owners have recognized that they couldn't keep doing those things the same way they always had. And then, in fact, the idea of this kind of mass shopping culture was also falling by the wayside. You know, people in all places didn't want the same stores, didn't want the same brands. And so as you're seeing successful malls now, um, a lot of them have much more of a kind of family fun entertainment concept. You know, instead of an anchor department store, you'll have a trampoline park. Other ones are anchored by much more elaborate food halls and grocery stores. Hmm. And then some really have turned into what I call ethnic marketplaces where you could basically like be in a city in China, 
even though you are in fact in Silicon Valley in Northern California, because the population of the suburb around them is largely Chinese and other Asian um, descent, and they want a different kind of store. You know, they want dumpling shops. They want, I don't know, other, other kinds of stores like that. Which is an interesting observation because to take them all out of the United States, I mean, I would, and I, I'm, I'm saying this not on the basis of any study or evidence, but my, my guess is that the mall currently is most successful uh, in cities like Bangkok, that there is something about that congested, congested sort of urban life, which makes the mall a thing of great convenience and a real, a, a real sort of urban centre, a place of, of great urban variety. Yeah, I think Asian malls, which tend to be more urban and more vertical than U.S. malls, are really innovative. And it's interesting in, you know, in Chinese cities, the mall is often a respite from the density and intensity of this Hmm. city outside. Whereas in the U.S., the mall is kind of an intensifier. Like it's the one place people can (laughs) go where they know they're going to see other people and be walking around with other people rather than in their cars. So it's a really different orientation. Um, And I, you know, I've only been to Australia one time, but I know that there are a lot of vertical malls in Australia. And I think those are heavily influenced by the Asian experience for obvious reasons. That idea of the intensifier, is that's such an interesting thought, and such an interesting contrast with that other, that other more expansive, relaxed, piped music, <laughs> air-conditioned mall experience. Well, it's funny because, yes, it is relaxed. You know, it's one to two stories. It's air conditioned. The music, they're often palm trees. You know, palm trees are very popular. But yet (laughs) in a lot of places, it was the only place you could go to walk around. You know, Mm. it was the only place you could go as a teenager that, you know, even if you didn't make a specific plan with your friends, you know, this is before cell phones, you would likely run into someone and be able to hang out. And, and, you know, that kind of... uh, you know, not a plan, but like knowing you're going to collide with someone, I think was an important part of social life. And the mall becomes an incredibly important sort of cultural trope in the United States. I mean, Joan Didion even took a course in shopping centre theory. It's, (laughs) It's intensely studied. Yes, it was really fun for me to put together kind of a literary history of the mall and to find Mm. out that Joan Didion, you know, of all people, was into the mall. You know, her favorite mall was Ala Moana in Honolulu, Hawaii, which at one time was one of the largest malls in the United States and is still, you know, very beautiful. It has a koi pond running down the center of it. Um, And so, yeah, the mall was this important cultural force and it was something that people really strove to understand through art. So I sort of grouped Joan Didion in a period of mall reflections with George Romero, the horror director who made the movie Dawn of the Dead, which is set at a mall and really asked the question, you know, are are the monsters the zombies or are they all of us being kind of tricked by capitalism and consumerism? (laughs) Well, a question that to this day remains unresolved, I think, Alexandra. (laughs) Yes, it was very, there is a long history of kind of zombies and malls, and it was really fun (laughs) to have that be on my research agenda. Look, thanks so much for for your time and, and for your book. Much appreciated. Sure, thank you.
Alexandra Lang, architecture critic and author, and the book is Meet Me by the Fountain, uh, an inside history of the mall. Bloomsbury is the publisher. It's in shops and libraries. This is Blueprint for Living, ABC RN. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.